everyone, and welcome to Sparks 538's Science Podcast, where the gang talks about the big ideas behind science writing. Your normal host, science editor Blythe Terrell, is out of the office today, and so instead, you get my voice. This is Chadwick Matlin, an editor at 538, and I'm here just to introduce our companion podcast to the one that has already been in your feed, in which the gang discussed the science of how we taste food through Bob Holmes's book, Flavor, the Science of Our Most neglected sense. This episode is our usual interview episode that follows the roundtable discussion. In this instance, we have Anna Maria Berry-Jester, who is interviewing Holmes. You're about to hear that now. Enjoy. Bob Holmes, thanks for joining us. My pleasure. Thanks. Okay. So there's a lot to talk about here, but I wanted to start a little bit from the very beginning and get some grounding in what it is we mean when we're talking about flavor. So we experience flavor as a combination of smell and taste, but we often kind of confuse taste and flavor when we use language to describe the two, as you really expertly explain in the book. But so broadly, taste is kind of what happens in our tongues, although, you know, as you explain, it's way more complicated than that. And then flavor is this combination of taste and smell. So I wondered if you could give us just a little bit of foundation in the role that smell plays, which I know is a huge question, but since it's so important, I wondered if you could kind of start us there. Sure. Yeah, happy to. You know, smell is is probably the largest part of flavor. Certainly it's, it's what adds the detail to flavor. If you were just to rely on taste alone, all you'd get are, you know, sweet, sour, salty, bitter, umami, just your, your most basic perceptions. And all the rest of the detail is down to smell. So, I mean, the easiest way to demonstrate that is just to, to hold your nose for a moment and eat something. I suggest doing what I call the jelly bean test. Take one of those fancy flavored jelly beans Hold your nose and pop it in your mouth. And yeah, it's sweet. Maybe you might get a little bit of sourness too if it's one of the tart flavors. And that's all you get. You have no idea what it is until you release your nose and let the sense of smell back into the picture. And all of a sudden, oh yeah, that's lemon. Oh yeah, that's cherry. Oh, that's coconut. So all of that detail is actually coming from the sense of smell, not taste. Yeah. It's so fascinating. And, you know, one thing that was like really quite revelatory to me was that you talk about how humans actually have a really good sense of smell, even compared to, say, dogs, who we think of as being such better smellers than us. But we use our sense of smell a little differently, right? It's, I mean, it's mostly in the service of eating. Is that right? That's right. Yeah. I mean, the, the odd thing about the sense of smell is that there, it's really two senses, which are physiologically actually kind of distinct. Uh, you know, if you think about it, there's two ways that odor molecules can get to the smell receptors, to the odor receptors in your nose, which are sort of right up there at, at the top of the bridge of your nose. And, you know, they can come in through the nostrils, that's sniffing, basically, or te- the technical term is uh, orthonasal olfaction. And, but you can also get aroma molecules up the back way from the inside of your mouth. And that's what's called retronasal olfaction. And that's that's where flavor comes from. And they're processed differently in the brain. And it turns out that humans are really good at retronasal olfaction, at the flavor end of olfaction. Uh, you know, if you think about a dog's nose, it sticks way out there in front. And it turns out the olfactory epithelium is actually well forward because their head sticks forward. So f- foods in the mouth you know, to the extent that food ever lasts very long in a dog's mouth, have a long, a long journey. The odor molecules have a long journey up a narrow passageway to get to the olfactory epithelium. Whereas in humans, you know, our heads are upright and the back of our nose is basically right over top of our mouth. 
And so it's a very short passage for flavor molecules, aroma molecules, to get up there. And so probably humans are unusually well adapted for perceiving flavor. It's a much more important part of our odor world than it is for something like a dog or a, or a rat or anything else. Right. So whereas like dogs are using their sense of smell to sort of perceive the world around them, it, it seems like we've adapted to in order to use our sense of smell in service of, of eating, of consumption. Right. Yeah. Which makes sense for a, an omnivorous species. Mm-hmm. That This is the sort of thing we, the sort of discrimination we need to make a lot. Is this okay to eat? Mm-hmm. And so, I mean, even in the even in the title, you say the science of our no- most neglected sense. I mean, why why do you think that we have we've thought so little about this such an important thing? Because to your point, without smell, uh, eating would not be a pleasurable experience. And you know, as we all know, that's like the, this is the the thing that binds us together, right? We get have this mm-hmm. wonderful. Uh, ability to enjoy food and, and that's a communal activity. It's so interesting to hear what an important role smell plays, but then also that we've done such a poor job of understanding it over time. Yeah. Part of it is that it's just not as obvious for a lot of our day as sight and hearing, but also we're, we have better vocabulary for talking about sight and hearing. And for one thing, we have names for colors. We can talk about yellow and blue and we don't have names for flavors other than to say what they're like. You know, that smells like lemon. That smells like strawberry. And we just don't have the objective flavor terms or odor terms, especially. And we don't have to talk about, you know, the Swedish flag as having lemon-like colors and sky-like colors. We can talk about yellow and blue, and that makes life a lot easier. Yeah, Well, and this language question is so interesting to me that it's hard for us to describe what we're eating, which you kind of suggest maybe impedes our ability to enjoy it a little bit. And I I wonder if you can talk about those sort of collective impediments about describing what we're eating and what people get out of getting a better vocabulary for describing smell and flavor. Yeah, I mean, it just, it makes it, it makes it easier to talk about it. You know, for us, having something be easier to talk about makes it easier to notice, easier to pay attention to and to enjoy. So the classic example there would be wine. You know, studies show that wine experts, you know, professional wine tasters, don't have any more sensitive noses than the rest of the world. What they have instead is practice and experience at matching vocabulary to their sensations. And that's something that anybody could learn or just about anybody could learn, to pin words to the sensations. And once you can do that, it opens up a richness that, that you didn't have otherwise. You know, being able to notice what's in your glass of wine rather than just gulp it down helps, I think. It, it adds to enjoyment. Yeah, and you, there are all these wonderful experiments throughout the book, and several of them are related to this question of language. I wonder if you have a suggestion for somebody who is trying to get started in this whole world of flavor <laughs> for, for a good sort of starting experiment to try and work on the, their vocabulary. What the studies suggest is that we have a much harder time fishing a term out of thin air than picking one out of a list. So if I give you, you know, any flavor, one of those jelly beans even, and ask you what the flavor is, you might not identify it just with, with no prompting. But if I give you a list of all the flavors that are in that jelly bean bag, you can probably pick out which one this is. So any, anybody who wants to sharpen their perception 
it helps to have a list of possible flavor terms. So, you know, they make a wine flavor wheel or in a variety of other wine flavor crib sheets. But they also make them for all kinds of other things. You can find a crib sheet for apple flavor. You can find one for beer flavor. They make chocolate flavor wheels. They make, you know, So you can pretty much pick your favorite, you know, pick what you want to learn about and go look for a flavor wheel or a flavor list and that makes it a lot easier for somebody to pick out, you know, what, what's here? What, what's in my cheese? Oh, yeah, that's a kind of a, that's a citrusy flavor. Or that's a, that's a you know, kind of a sweaty, sweaty feet flavor is common in, in cheeses. So if, if you've got a list, that's a great starting point. Yeah, and the some of the vocabulary was interesting for me reading this book. So I was I was actually reading it while I was in Peru, and I was eating my way through Lima, and so I was reading it while I was eating, which was really fun because you you brought up a lot of vocabulary that are are things where, like you're saying, I, I couldn't I didn't recognize that that was a flavor until I saw it on the page. So goatee was one that was really mm-hmm. really striking. I mean, barnyard is something you kind of hear often about wine. Are there mm-hmm. are there other words like that? So you know, you brought up citrusy are there other like vocabulary yeah. words here that strike you as interesting well uh i just mentioned the sweaty feet yes. which are <laughs> which is a component of a lot of aged cheeses it's isovaleric uh-huh. acid if i remember correctly and you know depending on the context you can perceive it as oh yeah that's that's cheese or Oh, they, ew, that's sweaty feet or sweaty armpits. Parmesan cheese shares a lot of odor compounds with baby vomit. And so if you get, if you get the very same odor in one context, it's pleasant. In another context, it's not pleasant because it brings up different associations. Yeah. And I, I, I think that's so funny about this is that a lot of these are words that you would not associate with good things. And yet they're in the foods that we love the most. And I, I don't know if there's anything that you want to kind of explain about that. Well, uh, it seems like a little bit of something nasty often adds interest to a food. One of the elements that's in aged cheeses, for example, is fatty acid breakdown products, which, you know, the products that are the the result of, of usually it's microbes breaking down the fats in milk. And that yields these, what are, if you get them in large quantities, they're really obnoxious. You know, think about old French fry oil that's gone off, was the way one researcher described it to me. And, you know, that's really not at all appetizing, except if you have just a little bit of it, it adds some interest. And you see this in perfumes all the time, too, that, you know, one of the elements in in a good perfume often is you know, cat pee. And, if you have too much, then ugh, why would I want to be standing next to that person? But if you have just a tiny bit, it adds interest. And the same sorts of, you know, these barnyardy, dirty, decay-type aromas that in a tiny quantity add interest to to a wine. Yeah, I guess we're a little more complex than maybe we give ourselves credit for sometimes. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> But so you also talk about how our sense of smell is influenced by both culture and experience. So in what it detects, it you know how it perceives these odors are based on what we've experienced in the past, and and that's sort of like twofold. So one, there's that you know sometimes we don't even detect something that we haven't been exposed to before. But you also give this really interesting example about I think you talked about almonds specifically in the book, where that's something that's a smell 
that's used to enhance sweetness in Western cultures, but it's part of pickling in Japan. So in, in Japan, almonds can give something a savory enhancement, while, whereas that's more going to be used for a sweet enhancement in the West. Is that right? Yeah, I think, I think, that's, I think almond was the example there. Yeah, that you know, as it turns out, an awful lot of flavor gets put together in the brain. And one of the best ways to show that is that certain aromas will enhance certain tastes. So you can give somebody a tiny, tiny amount of sweet taste in a solution uh, that's actually so small that they can't perceive it as sweet. And then a tiny, tiny amount of a certain aroma like almond, so tiny that they can't actually detect it by itself. But when you put the two together, then they notice a sweet almond flavor. So these two sub-threshold parts of flavor can combine to to make something that the brain can pick out. And what what they find when they do the experiment is that almond enhances sweet perception in people from the West because mostly we get almond in you know, desserts and almond croissants and things that we expect to be sweet. Whereas in Asia, it often shows shows up in in savory things and therefore it actually enhances i think it's umami perception mm-hmm. in people who are used to a traditional asian diet i mean so does this mean that everything is valuable <laughs> like is is nothing real <laughs> is it all open to interpretation uh, well, in our all, brains <laughs> it's all real it's just it gets put together in different ways mm-hmm so and it's a lot of, a lot of it is learnable so there's a, a kind of a cool experiment where doing the same sort of sub threshold flavor and aroma thing they gave people chewing gum with rose aroma and a slight sweet flavor and find that yeah they can detect it at lower thresholds there and it doesn't work if you combine rose and bitter because people aren't used to rose and bitter together. Mm-hmm. But then they gave people rose and bitter chewing gum and had them chew it every day for a month and then came back and tested. And sure enough, they've learned to put those two components of flavor together. So we, we learn these things very rapidly. Yeah. And so, okay, so we've got language is something that you can kind of experiment with and give you maybe some more enjoyment, but then also exposing ourselves sort of carefully to different flavor combinations can also connect things that maybe aren't previously connected. Yeah. Yeah. And, and certainly we learn to, we learn to like things in our diet. I mean, everybody I think remembers their first taste of coffee and I would be very surprised if anybody liked it on first taste. Yeah. I, you know, I think I was a little weird cause it didn't take me long, but certainly the first time I didn't like it. And it's hard to imagine how one could, because it's sort of inherently a really bitter, nasty. acrid, nasty yeah. flavor. <laughs> yeah. And, but, but it comes with this stimulating jolt of caffeine mm-hmm. and very rapidly we learn to like that bitter flavor because of what comes with it. Right. The stimulant dose. Okay, so just switching a little bit. So we, we've been talking about smell because it is so important and most people probably don't really quite understand the depth of its importance. But also taste is extremely important. Mm-hmm. So um, you, can, I think that you, you knocked out your taste buds, right? And found that eating was a fairly horrible experience. Would you describe yeah, that? Sure. I mean, what, 
one of the peculiar things about smell versus taste is, you know, it's very easy to eliminate the sense of smell by pinching your nostrils, but you can't hold your tongue to take out the sense of taste. And in, in the ordinary world, I mean, the only way people really lose their sense of taste is it's, it's cancer patients who get, are going, undergoing radiation to the head and neck that will often destroy taste buds. Uh, at least temporarily, and they have a horrible time being able to eat. A lot of them lose a lot of weight because they simply can't bring themselves to eat. And so we found, I, I talked to a researcher who thought he had a way to temporarily disable taste buds, or in particular sweet and salty flavors, tastes. And so we tried it. Uh, it's a, you know, there's a, a mouthwash that's often used prior to dental surgery uh, that knocks out salt perception for a half an hour or so. And there's a, a tea that you can make from a South American shrub called gymnema that knocks out sweet for about the same time. So we did that one day and knocked out both sweet and salty perception and then tried. It was weird. Uh, we, we, we did that and then had a hamburger and a Pepsi, I think. And, Oh, Pepsi is really weird if you can't taste the sweet. And and a hamburger tastes just like it's just like eating cardboard really or styrofoam. Uh even though even though you still have the odor perceptions, you know, without the taste, without the the sweetness and the saltiness to say this is good. Mm-hmm. It's really hard to make yourself eat. That it was the Pepsi, it was was it metallic? I mean, that's how I imagine it would be, but I I don't know. You get a prickle. You get a a prickle from the carbonation. Yeah. Okay, so there's still the sensation there, but it's not not the taste that you're experiencing. How how odd. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, it was was very bizarre. (laughs) Did did it turn you off of Pepsi for life, or was that one experience not enough? It's never been my favorite. (laughs) No, it's never been my favorite anyway. But so, okay, so you talked about with cancer patients, they're sort of one of the few ways that people lose taste. But I think you also described some studies where people who have sort of long-term lost their sense of taste, that they don't actually lose weight or waste away. Am I remembering that right? Uh, loss of smell, and they often don't. Oh, that was the loss of smell. Yeah. Okay. So they, and, and is that just survival mechanisms at play, or are people relearning to enjoy it well, in a different it, way? I mean, do they get that joy back? It seems like taste and smell are doing kind of different things, really, uh, in that taste is is the red light, green light. Should I eat this thing or not? And Because the basic tastes are for the basic things that you need in your food. You know, umami is marks the presence of proteins and Sweet marks the presence of carbohydrates. Salt is electrolytes that you need. Uh, you know, and, and bitter and sour are, are typically things to avoid. Most things that are bitter are toxic. Sour can often mark either unripe, inedible fruit or, or else something that's spoiled. So the sense of taste is really, it's the yes-no decision. And then smell brings in the, you know, well, what is it? And so that you can learn yeah, this was a nice thing to have. Uh, so you, that's more dispensable. Uh, so you can get by without the sense of smell. It makes it makes food much more boring. Uh, the people that I've talked to that have no sense of smell uh, all complain about that, but they find ways to get some sort of oral stimulation. 
one woman said, well, she switched from drinking wine to drinking gin and tonic because she still gets the bitter from the, the tonic. And people find, you know, I think it was the same woman said, well, Sri Racha <laughs> is now my friend because cause you don't lose the, the burning sensation of, of chili peppers. Right, which, okay, let's talk about that for a second here. Chili peppers are a favorite topic of mine. So sure. the chili peppers are doing something in addition to taste and and smell. Is that right? Right. It's actually, it's carried by the, the nerves that are responsible for touch, really. So the, it's a temperature. It's a temperature sensor. So it's the very same receptors that are in your skin that detect the warmth of a you know hot stove burner. And it turns out capsaicin also stimulates them. So when we say that a pepper is hot... As far as our brain can tell, that's literally true. It's coming from the temperature receptors. Yeah. Uh, it is hot. I love that, and I um, it, I also love that there. It's not just there's not just one kind of hot, right? There are these different kinds of hot that we only sort of barely understand. So I know you talked to Paul Bosland from uh, New Mexico, uh, yeah. and he has these wonderful ways of describing it, like a, a paint one. You know some. Chili peppers are like a paintbrush on your tongue where it's sort of spreading yeah. it around and others are more sort of... Yeah, sharp versus yeah. flat burns and you know burns at the front of the mouth versus the back of the mouth or how fast it builds. Yeah, so there's a, there seems to be a lot of stuff going on, um, which is odd because it's all, it's all the same chemical, capsaicin, and it's all interacting with the heat receptor. But, you know... M- most likely what it is is other components of the pepper, like how tough the cells are and therefore how quickly they release the capsaicin uh, affects how we mm-hmm. perceive it. Well, and I sort of love that they're, that they're so much more complicated than one might imagine, but it's also kind of such a shame that we don't know more about how it works and you know are able to sort of do, do what we want to do with them. <laughs> yeah, that's one of the things that makes flavor such a neat topic is that there's so much out there that's still not understood. Yeah. Are there, uh, that's a great question. So are there things that, you know, are clear to you after having done all the research for this book that really Hmm. deserve more attention than they're getting right now? Yeah. I mean, well, we still don't know for sure how, how odor is perceived, you know, how an odor molecule excites a particular odor receptor. And we have virtually no way of predicting which odor molecules are going to bind to which receptors, except by trial and error. Uh, we don't really know how, you know, how the 400 or so odor receptors in our noses, you know, different odor receptors, combine to make a, a perception of, of odor. And we know how to create, you know, when you watch a digital movie on your computer... Uh, you're seeing, you know, what what looks like a person doing things on the screen, and in fact, it's just little pinpoints of light, and that works because we know how to use those pinpoints of light to stimulate particular vision receptors and create a a, a digital video, and we know how to create, uh, you know, sounds, the the right set of vibrations out of zeros and ones in an audio track. And we don't know how to do that with odor, especially. Uh, so we don't have any sort of digital olfaction 
like we do for sight and sound. Wow. So really, we, we, we just need a lot more research on everything. <laughs> yeah, we need a lot more research on everything. I think that's, that's right. And, and I mean, it, it's gradually getting there. Mm-hmm. But, uh, but this, is, this is one of the really fast-moving areas in, in sensory research, which is exciting. Yeah, and and you know there is this whole sort of industrial uh, flavor complex, if you will. Um, mm-hmm. And you you went to visit some of these places, but it it I guess sort of it appeared to me like there are these flavor companies. They obviously know a lot about what we like and don't like, but a lot of it is sort of this trial and error and experimentation thing, rather than understanding how we perceive the flavors and then being able to combine things accordingly. Is that fair? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, what what they do if 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 you're trying to make a a new I don't know what let's say watermelon flavor, and you, there's really no substitute for trial and error. For let let's take these components and put them together and see if it's right. And if it's not quite right, then what do we need? Do we need a little bit more of the of the you know, fruitiness? Do we need a little bit more of the, you know, the, the more of the meloniness? And then you go back and do it again and test the new result and see if it works right. And if it doesn't work right, then you have to go back and do it. Try it again, tweak it. And there's really no substitute. There's no, there's no way to sit down ahead of time and say, this is going to be the perfect watermelon flavor. Mm-hmm. But, and yet they're very good at figuring out things that we like, they being the, the flavor makers. Mm-hmm. As I was reading this, I kept wondering, you know, what we could take from from what we do know about flavor and how we enjoy food and understand sort of the global obesity epidemic and what to do about it. And I just wondered if there's anything that you learned while you were studying this. You kind yeah. of bring it up a little yeah. bit. I know that's what, a whole other big topic. <laughs> what I learned was that flavor has surprisingly little to do with how much we eat. You would you would think that if food tasted better, we would eat more, or else, on the other hand, some people have suggested, well, if you get more flavor from your food, you don't have to eat as much. And there's there's a tiny bit of evidence to suggest the latter, that more flavor means less consumption. But it's not very convincing, and it's not very important. So for the most part, I think hunger is regulated separately. If if you have a meal that you particularly like, sure, you will eat more at that meal, but probably you compensate at the next few meals. You'll eat a little bit less. Now, everybody knows that from you know the morning after Christmas dinner or Thanksgiving dinner, that you tend to eat pretty lightly the next day. Yeah. But our bodies are sort of perceiving our calorie intake based on our, our, ta- our sense of taste, mm-hmm. right? So the sugar, salt, umami. Mm-hmm. Um, is there, is there anything there that we, we can take away about how to, how to deal with this and why we're kind of consuming so much more than maybe we, we need? There probably is something going on there. And I think there's still a lot to work out. Um, people have done experiments largely with rats, but a few with humans now where they've been able to separate flavor from the nutritional consequences. Uh, in rats, you do it pretty easily by having them drink flavored water while they're wearing, you know, while they've got a stomach tube fitted, and you can as supply calories or not through the stomach tube, and and they quickly learn which flavors are paired with good nutrient rewards, even though they never taste the nutrient rewards. 
So it, it turns out that you have taste receptors in your gut that are noticing whether there's carbohydrates, noticing whether there's proteins present. And so you, you can tell, your gut can tell when it's getting fed, and you learn to like those flavors. And that that seems pretty clear, which suggests that maybe that it's you're not likely to succeed with a diet that involves eating you know rice crackers because you can't fool your gut you can't fool your gut it it knows that flavor is not giving me anything interesting and and therefore it's not not something to crave which raises the question of course of why people then drink diet coke which gives them the flavor, but not the nutrient reward. And that, that ought to discourage them. Uh, and I asked the researcher that, and she suggested that probably what's going on is that you know we encounter those sorts of sweet, caramelly, citrusy flavors in other contexts too, where they, are, where they do come with nutrient rewards. Uh, and so we're not able to just... Dis- so... Dis- we can't isolate, yeah. If if Diet Coke had a flavor, a really distinctive flavor that we never encountered anywhere else, probably we wouldn't mm. like it. Oh, that's really interesting. And so central to so many, you know, are sort of our major global health concerns. But it was interesting to me that it seems like a lot of the research, in fact, is coming out of industry. And I mean, clearly there are wonderful researchers at many places you know, trying to understand flavor that are not in, working in, in industry, but the, a lot of the financing really is there um, in, in ter- you know, in service of sort of creating foods that we love. And so it's sort of hard to imagine how we, f- how we get down that path that's going to help us um, learn to regulate a little bit better. Yeah. I mean, some of, some of the research is probably, probably has really clear health payoffs, uh, salt substitutes or ways mm-hmm. to reduce salt without impairing flavor are one of those um, where there are some there are some tricks that will let people reduce salt without affecting flavor very much. I talked to a guy who was experimenting one, one of the one of the ways to do it is to exploit contrast and so they've actually been working I and mean, this is this is a process that only works in an industrial bakery but they make uh, bread with layers of salted versus unsalted dough and just thin layers. Uh, but what it means is when you bite into it, you get this contrast between salty and not salty layers, and that enhances the your perception of the salt. And so that you can actually cut in half the amount of salt in the bread without making it taste as bleh as low-salt bread <laughs> usually tastes. Yeah, that's oh, that's really interesting. So there are there are things that we could be doing differently. Yeah. So there are there are a few ways to to do it. And another another way to do that is to exploit the aromatics that are in um, that that we ac- associate with saltiness. So some of the aromatics in something that you expect to be salty, like bacon, uh, because of the way your brain assembles these things, and it's the same sorts of reinforcement that we talked about earlier with the you know the rose and bitter chewing gum, or the almonds. Uh, if you supply those aromatics, 
people will think there's more salt there than there really is. Right. So reducing the sodium, but keeping the, the sort of odor at, at the same level. Right. Could, yep. That's, yeah, that's really interesting. Yeah. And the other place that that's really evident is in tomatoes. Uh, I talked to, you know, Mr. T- Dr. Tomato, uh, who's, who's the guy who's going to make the biggest difference, I think, in our, in our culinary experience in the next 10 years. Um, about how to get flavor back into commercial tomatoes. And what he said was, you know, tomatoes are bred for yield more than anything else. Growers want lots of pounds of tomatoes and they've done, they've done so well at breeding for high yielding tomatoes that they basically outstripped the plant's ability to put sugars in. There's so many tomatoes that the leaves just can't supply sugars fast enough. And that makes the tomatoes taste bland. But it turns out that there's aroma molecules in the tomatoes that we associate with sweetness that make the tomato taste sweeter than its sugar content says it actually is. And they've found, they found out what those are and they're finding ways to breed those back into commercial tomatoes. So essentially by supplying those aromatics, when you eat the tomato, you think it's sweeter than it really is. It tastes like a much better tomato than the sugar content alone would say it is. Right. And and uh, the result is these tomatoes that people say are, oh, yeah, these are the best tasting tomatoes I've had. That's incredible. And they're close to commercializing those. And, and, you know, I mean, you're right, you're right that tomatoes is sort of the classic example that people think about when we, when we think about like the way that we've bred our food, foods and especially fruits and vegetables to have less flavor mm-hmm. in the service of sort of being able to transport them and uh, eat them all year round yeah. and that kind mm-hmm. of thing. Um, so that's, that's pretty exciting. <laughs> yeah, it is. It really is. Transitioning a little bit. So there's this idea of super tasters, which are people mm-hmm. who have a large number of taste receptors on their tongue. Correct me if I'm wrong on that. Right. But um, one thing that I, this is another thing that I just can't think enough about, which is that, you know, it, it, it's not like being a super taster means one thing. So for some people, that means that they really are very good at differentiating foods and, you know, um, flavors and that kind of things. For other people, it makes everything seem really bitter and horrible. Um, and yeah. I wonder if you, if you wanted to talk about that a little bit. Sure. Yeah, I mean, it sounds like such a wonderful thing to be a super taster. But in fact, it's often not something to be proud of because... You know, super tasters are, as you say, people who have more taste receptors on their tongues and therefore flavor sensations are more intense. And I think that for a lot of people, that makes them have really narrow, bland diets because it's just, it's, it's overwhelming to, to eat something like broccoli or collard greens that are just, that are too bitter. Uh, and so a, a lot of super tasters have very narrow diets. Not all of them, though. Uh, as it turns out, I probably am a super taster, and I see that in some ways. I always put milk in my tea because otherwise it's just too tannic. It's it's unpleasant. Um, but I've learned to like the bitter. You know, so I I've learned to like the very hoppy beers. I taste them as very bitter, but I like it. I I like the bitter greens. I like my coffee black because you know. Because I've learned. I've spoken to researchers who are also have extremely sensitive bitter receptors who love tonic water. Gin and tonic is my drink. Um, 
they say, and because they like it. They like the sensation. Uh, one researcher suggested that in addition to the super taster versus not uh, split, there ought to be a, a food adventurous versus not adventurous split. <laughs> and the super tasters that are not adventurous are the ones with the narrow diets. Right. But the adventurous ones like like the new sensations, like the intense sensations. Mm. And And so... Say, my question is, say you're a parent. So on the one hand, you want to expose your kids to lots of food so they can learn to enjoy them. You know, you're supposed to eat a lot if you're a mother who's breastfeeding, try and give them this sort of broad palate. But then, you know, mm-hmm. you have kids who are picky eaters. And some of that is, you know, fear of new foods and whatnot. But that it also might be that they are really experiencing sort of great displeasure when they eat. How do you go about trying to negotiate those two things? Experience, patience, <laughs> practice, I think. Kids, kids, by and large, learn to eat what their culture eats. And uh, I, I think it's, it's, a, yeah, it's a matter of practice. Not giving up, giving them little tastes, having them, having them continue trying things. You might have to wait until they're 15 before it starts to pay off. But um, it seems like it normally does. I suppose that goes for a lot of things with parenting. <laughs> yeah, that's probably right. <laughs> um, okay, so one last question for you. I, you know, I'm curious if writing this book and doing all these experiments, uh, if you discovered any new foods that you love or flavors or anything that sort of was revelatory to you in your experience hmm. of eating. Uh, habanero peppers, for one. Oh, interesting. So you, you found a love Which for I, them? I, yeah. They have, a, they have a really interesting, much fruitier flavor than the green chilies that I was used to using. I'd never used one an habanero before. And this was, it was quite a revelation to me. Um, I love the flavor now. They're very hot, but I love the flavor. Uh, what else? Oh, Szechuan pepper oh, right. was something that I'd never experienced before and or not knowingly, at least it's, it's a, it's one of these touch related sensations that's completely off the wall. Uh, if you take a piece of a Szechuan peppercorn, which is not actually pepper, it's a, you know, flower bud of a citrus family thing. You put one in your mouth and crush it you get a sort of a vaguely peppery flavor for a little while. And then after a minute or two, your tongue starts to buzz. It's like a vibration. People have actually tested this with a tunable vibrator and it's a, it's a 60 Hertz or 50 Hertz vibration. It's mind blowing. (laughs) And, And your tongue, your tongue will buzz for a few minutes. How? And, and then gradually go away. And it's, it's such an unusual, peculiar sensation can't experience any other way. That's incredible. Well, and I don't think we can possibly top that. Uh, so maybe we'll, maybe we'll end there. Thank you so much for, for joining us today. Sure. My pleasure. That was 538's Anna Maria Barry Jester interviewing Bob Holmes about Holmes's book, Flavor, the Science of Our Most Neglected Sense. Thanks, as ever, to all those who help out with the show, including Tony Chow for production assistance. Kitty Ferguson is our editor. And thanks to Elliot Garnier for help with this episode. What's the Point's music is by Harishikesh Herway. 
As you know, we do this podcast every month in the What's the Point feed. Subscribe now so you do not miss an episode and help spread the word. And let us know what you think by emailing podcast at 538.com with any comments or suggestions. I'm Chadwick Matlin. Thanks for listening. <laughs>